this is what separates professionals from everybody else is they actually have coaches, mentors, people that are providing them feedback who are as good at, as they are in terms of their skill sets, but they're older and they have wisdom and they're sharing their wisdom with them as a coach or mentor. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Us listeners. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Tom Corley. I've got to know him very, very briefly, but his story is great. He's got all the right pedigrees, big fours, CPA, CFP, the right designation. But more importantly, he's an avid researcher and trying to basically figure out different ways that he can help. And his story is going to get unfolded. I'm not going to give up too much of it away. I really want to hold, encourage you guys just stay till the end because one thing we're going to be talking about is four, four paths to wealth. And one of the way is going to be very, very close, closely resembles your path. So stay till the end. Hopefully you're, uh, you're going to get the value that I believe our discussion is going to bring today. Tom, with that said, welcome to the show, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me on, Socket. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Tom, I know you are recovering from something that you caught over the last few weeks. And then I, I have a, I had a severe headache last week. So if, if we go down the trail of Tom coughing and me having headaches, just bear with us. We're going to we're gonna do our best to add the, add the value that we promise our audience. So Tom, tell me one question, answer one question, buddy. What does the term migrate to wealth mean to you? Well, I think everybody, it means something differently to everybody. For me, migrate to wealth is really about realizing my final dream, you know, that was, uh, I think everybody should have a, a list of their dreams that they want to realize in life. And my final one is to become someone I call JC Jobs, who was the, one of the main characters in my books, uh, my Rich Habits books. So he's uh, the sort of the future ideal version of Tom Corley. And every day, you know, when I wake up, I, I do what I think JC Jobs would do. I kind of follow that him as a template to, and, and he's very wealthy, you know, in my, my books, he's uh, sold half a billion books. He's worth over $250 million. And, uh, he was an accountant just like, just like me. So he, he started out that way and his wife passed away and it's a very, uh, cool story. And, and I think that it gives me a, we always, we all need a, a GPS, a, a, a destination and, and then if we have that destination, then the obstacles and the mistakes and the failures, they don't stop us. They just are things to be overcome. And, and that's kind of how I, you know, no matter what has gone on in my life, I've, I've stayed focused on trying to become JC Jobs. So I think that's the key. It's, it's, it's my guiding light. I love that term. Something, one thing I really like when we do telling about it is that the fictional character, even though it's fictional, JC Jobs, it's really your aspiration your true aspiration of if you had to be born a certain way and write your own destiny and all that good stuff, this is the person as of today you think you want to become. Was that the inspiration for the book? Yeah, it's really the the inspiration for Rich Habits for writing the book mm -hmm. was the idea. I, I got a lot of feedback from people I was teaching these Rich Habits to in training sessions. I called them uh, learning sessions. They were begging me to write a book about this stuff because they were having uh, some success, and they thought that this was groundbreaking stuff that I was doing. And 
this is going back to 2009, 10, 11. So yeah, I ended up writing Rich Habits. I had never written a book before. I didn't know even how to begin. But you know, whenever I don't understand something, I, I my starting point is always buy three books on the topic, read them, and then yeah. and and then the other thing I have in the back of my mind is no matter how hard it might be, there is never going to be anything that I tackle that is going to be harder than studying for and passing the CPA exam. Oh, that was, my God, man. Yeah, I've definitely heard that. That was, a, you know, a, a year and a half, 22-hour exam, year and a half of study. There's, uh, Wait, it's a 22-hour exam? I didn't realize that. It, it isn't that. In the, you know, when I took it, it was. It was a 22-and-a-half-hour exam. It was, oh, it was, uh, it was so hard and so much content that was covered in it. And, yeah. you know, you have to really, when you, when you achieve something, that is that like monumental and uh, and everyone who takes assist for the cpa exam has the same reaction my god that was one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life i remember when someone said you know one of the one of the people in my learning sessions one of the students they said you got to write a book and i was like i don't know how to write i'm not a writer i'm a an accountant and they said can't be harder than than getting your cpa and i said damn he's he's right and so, and sure, sure enough, Socket, it wasn't. It was a lot easier. It was monumental right. easier. It was so much easier. So, and then I found out, and this is important. This is why you pursue dreams and, and the goals behind the dreams is uh, you might unearth an innate talent that you possess. And I discovered two innate talents. One I already kind of knew was I was a very good speaker. I liked doing it and I was good at it. Uh, I didn't know I was a good writer. I felt like uh, I was good at math, but I wasn't really, you know, writing wasn't a thing. Well, I found out I have this innate talent and writing came just so much easier for me than it does for a lot of other people. And, um, and when I, and the other thing that happens whenever you discover an innate talent that you possess is it brings you enormous joy and bliss because you're on the right path. You're on the path you're supposed to be on when you discover an innate talent and you de devote the rest of your life to exploiting it and perfecting it. So I found this innate talent and it gave me an enormous amount of joy, happiness, and bliss by engaging in it. And that's, um, I'm so glad I found it. You know, I, I was in my 40s. Uh, imagine going your whole life and, and most people do without finding their innate talent. It's just a shame. Yeah. But if you do find it, uh, your life changes and it changes for the better 100% of the time. No, I love that. And th thank you, Tom, for bringing that up because I think this is this is important stuff because uh, what you said was most people go through their life realizing their true talents and not because life's not presenting the opportunities for them to identify them. That's because I think the path that you took, the people that you surrounded with pushing you in a direction and partly you are open to it. I mean, you can't be a good speaker if you if you don't have well-articulated thoughts in your head. So I think you probably didn't recognize the two, that because you're speaking to an audience, you have to have a coherent thought. That coherent thought cannot come while things are clear to you. And things probably were so clear to you that when you started writing, they even became more clear. So I really think that as a as a speaker, as an author, they go hand in hand, that if you if you're not, or I should not say that a great writer may not be the best speaker, but a good speaker, chances are, has good writing capabilities because they. Yeah, have well, one one of the things that I learned, in because I've done a lot of speaking engagements, is you have to write out your speech. Yeah. First, I never memorize a speech. I use the PowerPoint as sort of just a you know one word 
or picture memory jogs, and then I can go off for an hour on one topic. Yeah, because you know, because I've been devoting my life to to my rich habits research. So one topic, and I see a picture, and I'm I'm off. And I think that that's important to write out what you want to talk about quick, and and then and then you sort of break it down into really one word memory jogs, and and that's what I've been doing. It's and one of the things I've learned about being really good speaker is you really you can't you too much information kills a speech so you have to focus on the things that you want to like what do i want to share with sockets audience today correct we talked about this we i said you know really i want them to come away with this one understanding of the four paths to wealth which which uh if, if they learn anything the, the one thing this is going to be the most important thing that they learn because uh, it's it's revolutionary. No, but you'll never see it anywhere else. It's proprietary to my research, and uh, I think they're going to get a lot of value out of that. Tom, let's jump right into it, buddy. What are those four uh, four paths to wealth? Well, these, so these are the four paths to self-made wealth. I've written a lot about them, and and of course, there's always critics out there, and they say, well, you missed about four paths. Other paths: there's inheriting your wealth. There's winning the lottery. And I said, no, you, you, you didn't really read the article. Yeah. Uh, it's about self-made. It's about being in control of your life and creating your wealth. You know, if you're, if you're going to be one of those individuals who says, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to become wealthy. And I say, how? I'm going to win the lottery or uh, I'm going to inherit money or something lucky is going to happen to me. Yeah. Then you're not going to get, I know you're not going to get wealthy and you have no plan. Well, the nice thing about my research on this particular topic, the four paths of wealth is it really it gives you the, see, everybody has a different personality profile. Some people are outgoing mm-hmm. and some people are, you know, they're, they're shy yeah. and some people are aggressive and some people are conservative. Everybody's, you know, different. Everybody has a different DNA that we inherit from our parents. And so the nice thing about this four paths of wealth is that it really doesn't matter what your personality is. It's, what matters is that you choose the path to wealth that is best suited for your personality. So let me give you an example. The four paths are, number one is the saver investor path. Number two is the big company climber path. Number three is the virtuoso path. And number four is the dreamer entrepreneur path. Now, let's take the saver investor path and juxtapose it to the the entrepreneur path. The saver investor path, most of those individuals have a personality profile where they're frugal, they're, uh, they, they're savers, mm-hmm. um, they want to work a nine to five, they don't want to have take on enormous responsibilities, they don't want to climb you know, the company ladder, they just want to have a life. They want to have a life. That's their number one priority. But while they're having a life, they want to save 20% of their income and live within their, their standard of living with, based on the remaining 80%. That's the saver investor. The entrepreneur is the exact opposite. These individuals don't save. They can't save because they're putting everything on the line. They're very, um, they have a high risk tolerance, whereas the saver investor, investor has a low risk tolerance. They're very outgoing, whereas the saver investor is sort of um, you know shy and and they're not, re- they're not, they're not the kind of person that you know walks into a room and takes over the room. The entrepreneur is. So there's a the whole different set of personality uh, traits associated with those two paths. Now the big company climber path and the entrepreneur path, 
They're very similar. The big company climbers, they're, they're aggressive. Uh, they have a high risk tolerance. Many of them climb the ladder by building these power relationships and, and this, you know, and they stay within one company typically. And there's, there's, so there's a high risk to that because let's suppose that, you know, you spent 20 years with the company and now you're, you know, you've reached the, you know, the top and you're, you know, two, two stages away from being the CEO and then the company gets bought out and now you're knocked back down to just, just like everybody else, right? So there's a lot, a lot of risk associated with that. So there's a high risk in the big company climate path as there is in the entrepreneur path. There's less risk in the saver investor path and the virtuoso path. Those paths are most those those two paths are closely aligned. They have the similar personality traits. A virtuoso is someone that likes to uh, become be the be the expert in their industry. They are not the individuals who are thrilled about standing out in a crowd. They they you know they they want to be behind the scenes in the back of being very smart and best at what they do. And uh, so you know they have a low risk tolerance. They their profile is I'm gonna I'm just gonna study or practice because there's the the virtuoso is really two flavors. There's the knowledge based virtuoso and the skill based virtuoso. I would put my myself in the category of the knowledge based virtuoso. I would put some you know like if anybody watched uh, watches football and they saw the Super Bowl, you would see Patrick Mahomes. He'd be in that category of the skill-based virtuoso, you know, the best, among the best in their industry. You could say like a neurosurgeon would be a virtuoso. Somebody like Tom Corley, who specializes in his unique research on rich habits, habit research, uh, that would make me a virtuoso. And, um, you know, you just have this unique knowledge base or skill, skill base. The skill-based part, if you, if you have skills, then that's how you make your money by deploying your skills, it typically requires a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something somewhere in the neighborhood of three hours a day. And it's, uh, you know, there's regular practice, there's repetitive practice, regular practice, and then there's the type of practice where you, you actually practice subsets of your skills. And then the third type of practice is where you actually seek feedback from others. This is this is how professionals, this is what separates professionals from everybody else. And they actually have coaches, mentors, people that are providing them feedback who are as good at, as they are in terms of their skill sets, but they're older and they have wisdom and they're sharing their wisdom with them as a coach or mentor. And so the, the you know, the skill-based virtuosos have to put in a lot of work, knowledge-based virtuosos have to put in a lot of work in the form of reading, sort of gaining knowledge and maintaining their knowledge base and gaining knowledge. They are co continuous learners. And, and so I think that I think that it makes it unique if you look at this holistically. Okay, great. What kind of a personality trait do what what are my personality traits? And you know, I I did create a, a test that you can take. It's actually four tests. And it'll it'll give you an idea of what what your personality profile is and what path to wealth is best suit you're best suited for, and I think that's important because if if I had it to do all over again, I would have got you know I would have said you know this is I learned I have this innate talent in writing. Well, I should have been doing that from day one, shouldn't I? I should have been I, I should have found that innate talent and that made me a virtuoso of what I do. When I was 16, 15, 16, 17 years old, it's not at 48. So it's just the na na you know, nature of what happened to my, my life, my experience. Uh, but I found it. I was lucky enough to find it. So my 
my point in bringing up the four paths is there's there's a lot of people who say I'm I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be an, an entrepreneur and they just they don't have the personality for it because whenever they face adversity or criticism they cower and and they fade and they're like a shrinking violet. Those people should not be entrepreneurs and they shouldn't be big company climbers. They should be saver investors or virtuosos because they, those types don't really like criticism that much. They stay away from it. So you have to find what path of wealth is best suited for you. And and I, I think that's my research helps people find that path. Tom, I love that. Let me repeat the four paths. The, the four paths that you really have is, it's really four different types of personality have. Uh, the first one is a saver investor. The second is a company climber. The third one is a virtuoso. And the fourth one is an entrepreneur, right? And I think I, I love how you described it, that, that, that you have to, before you ask people how, before you ask yourself, how do I want to make my wealth? It'd be good to understand what is your current capability? Because you may be aligning in one of the two. Now, I want to I figure out, maybe I'm challenging you in that, can people move in between and I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point, Socket. So here's so, some interesting data from my research. The entrepreneurs and the big company climbers at some point migrate over to the saver investor path 100% of the time. There's very few entrepreneurs and big company climbers who say, you know what, I want to put all my money on red again, or I want to devote all my time to doing this. Uh, like the big company climbers are mainly time-based, entrepreneurs are money-based when they put all their money at risk, they put all their time at risk, the big company climbers. Well, it's interesting, but at usually at the age of about 55, when they become wealthy and they've accumulated somewhere in the neighborhood of between three and six million dollars, the big company climbers and the entrepreneurs almost a hundred percent of the time become saver investors. They're now shifting over to preserving their wealth. They they, you know, they created this wealth by taking risks by doing these incredible things, climbing the ladder, you know, getting criticized in the process while they're climbing the ladder. And, you know, there's people that are trying to cut your shins as you're climbing the ladder. It's just a nasty political reality of being a big company climber. And the entrepreneur is putting all their money at risk. They're putting all their time and money at risk. They're, sometimes they get divorced because their, their spouses said, I've had enough of this. I can't take it anymore. It's too <laughs> up and down for me. And then when they actually make their money, they make their fortunes, they magically shift and they say, you know what? This was really hard and I'm going to hold on to this money. So yes, it's very rare for a saver investor to migrate to an entrepreneur or a virtuoso to migrate to an entrepreneur or big company climber. That's unusual, but it's not uncommon for a big company climber, even a virtuoso, one entrepreneur to migrate over to a saver investor. I love that. And then, uh, so let's let's talk about. Do you ever see people in a hybrid? And, and I have not taken the test, so I can't really speak to it. So let's say, am I am I one hundred percent virtuoso, or am I eighty percent virtuoso, twenty percent saver? How yeah, how clear all these lines? Yeah, that. So that's me. It's interesting. When I took my own exam, the entrepreneur path was but but was was the path I was supposed to be on. Right behind it was the virtuoso path. And right behind it, uh, the big company climber path. Now, what was interesting is I, I chose the big company climber path for you know, a good 14, 15 years of my career. And I was successful in climbing the ladder. And there was a reason for that because it, it, I had the personality profile for that. But the one thing I couldn't stand was the politics. I could not stand the politics involved in being a big company climber. I, I just had a low tolerance for that. Well, I liked also, I went and I got my 
CPA, my CFP. I got my master's degree in taxation. I got all these licenses. I devoted most of my life to becoming a virtuoso. And my rich habits research was just, you know, has been so far about 14 years of just doing research and, and becoming an expert in, in neuroscience and habit formation and things like that, wealth creation and poverty even. And so, you know, I have this, it's, it's not a surprise to me that when I took the exam, that I was number one, an entrepreneur, number two, a virtuoso, and number three, a big company climber, right? Neck and neck, like a couple of percentage points apart. Way, way, way back was the saver investor. And the reason for that was, you know, I was, we were raised in poverty. And when you're, people who are raised in poverty will understand what I'm saying here. When your inner circle is mostly poor people. The minute that you become wealthier than them, you become the the banker of your inner circle. I couldn't save. I remember one time I saved about six thousand dollars, and I said, "I'm I'm going to save this money." And this was in my thirties. And then my father said, "I need six thousand dollars to pay my real estate taxes." There it goes, right out the door. All that hard work. So I couldn't. When you're up in a poor person, it's hard to it's hard to be a saver investor. Yeah. Unless unless the the people in your inner circle who are poor, you you exit them from your inner circle. You basically ignore them. Correct. And you turn your back on them, which is hard to do, especially when that's family. So yeah, so that was something that I struggled with and I, I knew, well, I could never be a saver investor because there's I have too much empathy and there's too many people in in my inner circle that are poor and they you know, I would just give away my money. Good for you, man. Because if you didn't give it away, you won't earn it all back, right? So which is great. So you had to keep uh, raising your own bar, which is great. So tell, help me in a sense. Now, after listening to this, after maybe taking the test, and we'll talk about where can they take that test a little bit later, what's the next step when somebody figures that out? Because, okay, that's great to know what path is the right path for yeah. you. What's really the next step? Well, you need to now sit down and say, am I on the right path? What am I doing? Now, if this was Tom Corley and I took this test and I'm 35 years old, and I, and I said, wow, look at this. I'm supposed to be an entrepreneur and a virtuoso, but here I am doing this big company climber stuff. Well, what ended up happening is uh, I eventually, because it was not the right personality, I didn't have, did not have the exact personality profile to be a big company climber. I couldn't take the politics. I eventually couldn't take it anymore, and I left that uh, the, the corp- corporate headquarters. I wasted a lot of time, Socket. Had I known that my path was supposed to be an entrepreneur or a virtuoso, those were the ones that were separated by only like a percent or two. Had I known that, I wouldn't have wasted 15 years of my life. I would have just focused on being an entrepreneur or being a, a virtuoso. And I would have had much more success. So imagine now you're 35 years old. This happens usually between the age of 35 and 40 when you have a mortgage and three kids. And you say, damn, I put my ladder on my parents' wall. Yeah. My ladder is my innate, my, my, you know, my, I might have this talent for something. I had talent in math. I was good at math. And I said, well, I must be, my father said, become an accountant. And that's what, you know, he thought if you became an accountant, you'll never starve. And that meant a lot to me when I was a sophomore in college. And so I took my ladder, which is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life as a career. And I put it on my father's wall, become an accountant. That was his dream, not my dream. Mm. Happens in your third between 35 and 40 years old, you realize I do not like what I'm doing for a living. That's because you put your ladder, your your life, what you're gonna do for the rest of your life on somebody else's wall. So now you're you're looking at you're listening to this podcast. You said, Well, 
Am I in the right wealth path? Is is it suitable, the path that I'm on? Most people don't even know that there's full wealth path, so they wouldn't even, now that they've been enlightened a little bit, they'll say, okay, let me find out. And they'll take the test a lot of people have, and they'll say, gosh, you know, I'm on the wrong path. Well, you know what? You that you now know you have self-awareness and you can change what you're doing with your life. You can still, you can't just quit your job. It's, it's unrealistic. Right. You're, you're 35, 40 years old. You can't quit your job. You got a you know, wife and kids and you got a mortgage. So what do you do? You devote part-time, just like I did when I was writing books. I had was running a CPA firm and I was growing my financial planning practice. The only time I had was 4.30 in the morning to 7 in the morning to write. Mm. And that's how I wrote Rich Habits, between 4.30 and 7 in the morning. And it took me, you know, a good 16 months to, to get that manuscript done. Yeah. And then and then I, I, I duplicated that process. That's another thing that's interesting about the research that I've done is successful people, wealthy people, they have foolproof processes that they've discovered that they use. We could call them habits. That's fine. I like to call them habits, but there's they're really just processes. There's things. This is a this is what I'm going to follow. So I took the same process that I use with rich habits, and I applied it to rich kids, the second book, and then to change your habits, change your life, the third book, and so on and so forth. I've had eight, eight books that I've written doing this process. It works. So, you you know, you, and by the way, you know, the, the money that I'm making on my books now rivals what I'm doing with, you know, my CPA and my financial planning. So it takes time doing it part. It does take time. But if you're, if you're raising a family, you have responsibilities. You can't just abandon that and say, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to throw it all on the line. I'm going to take a risk. It's, that's unrealistic. So Tom, what is a good age to take that test? So I think because when you're 16 and 17, you don't necessarily have your voice because you don't have a life's experience, right? So you're, you're just kind of either, you're going to listen to somebody. It's either your parents, your friends, your counselor, your teacher, whatever. Right. At 30 and 40, 30, 35, 40, now you have a lot of responsibilities. And for some people, it may be very daunting. And they may say, especially the, if you're a saver investor type, you're already risk averse. So at that point, they're like, what's the point in even taking that test? Because it is what it is. Uh, well, I, think I think it's important to take that test when you're in, in high school because you're going, if you're going to college or if you're going to go into a, a trade, let's say you, you take the test because it's really a personality test that mm-hmm. is steers you to the what the path to wealth that is suitable for you. And you say, well, look, it says here that I should be a virtuoso. Mm-hmm. I'm 18, I'm 17. So what am I going to major in in college? Well, what are what are the majors that that would help me become a virtuoso and and whatever it is that I do? Well, you might want to become a scientist. You might want to go say, well, obviously I I I should be going for my PhD. So college is going to be the stepping stone to my PhD or graduate school. You know, you you might want to, you might want to take take a curriculum in college that will help you to become a virtuoso or the top in your field, whatever that might be, that field. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, then go to a university that has entrepreneur programs. There's one university in, in New Jersey, only one out of all of the universities in New Jersey that has an entrepreneur curriculum. So there, you have to find that curriculum, that college that has an entrepreneur curriculum, if you're going to be an entrepreneur. If you're the saver investor type, meaning I have a low risk tolerance, I don't, I, I want to have, I want to have a life. I don't want to be working 70 hours a week. I want to work 35 hours per week. And I want to hang out with my friends and my family. 
Right. Well, then you could become a teacher or you could become an accountant or anything like that, but know that you have to save a 20% or more of your income. Uh, so the, it helps steer you in the right direction. At least you're going in, you're not blind, you know. And if you decide to take a path that is not suitable for you, you, you go in with eyes wide open and you say, okay, well, I don't, I, you know, according to Tom Corley, I'm not going to succeed in this path. And then you, you say, I don't care what Tom Corley says, I'm going to do it anyway. And then, True. you know. Six, seven years later, you, you say, okay, well, that didn't work. And then I'm going to listen to Tom Corley now. You know, that, it, that means who, right. everybody's stubborn, right? We have egos. We think, you know, this, this, what is he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Tom, the definition of wealth in your self-made wealth path. Great question. What is Great that? Question. Is that money? Is that, what is that? Because I'm thinking about when you said as a teacher, so path as a wealth path as a teacher <laughs> is very different. Than an than an entrepreneur than a big company. We're not saying that all of them. And I'm not say, I'm not using your words. I'm putting words in your mouth at this time. So correct me. You're not saying you're all gonna become. You're gonna become a net worth of ten million dollars. That's not the uh, no. the outcome. No. So in order to make it into my study as a wealthy person, you had to have a net investable assets of three point two million or more. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the saver investors in my study were all in their late fifties and early sixties. The entrepreneurs in my study were typically in their mid-40s, early 50s. The big company climbers were typically in their early 50s, and the virtuosos were you know, anywhere between 45 and 50, 60 years of age. But the interesting thing is the saver investors had the lowest net investable asset, assets, let's just call it wealth, of uh, 3.4 million. The I'm, I'm sorry, Tom, uh, just, to, just to interrupt. When you say net investable asset, what does that mean? That means... It doesn't include equity in your home for most people. But if you have rental properties and stuff, it all includes it. Except your home. And rental properties includes your 401k. It just, your savings, it just doesn't include the equity in you. Now, if you are, if you were a big company climber, they had an, a wealth of about four, about three, about four million. And if you were virtual, so they had a wealth of about 4.1 million, I think. Actually, it was inverted. The big company climbers had 4.1 and the, and the virtuosos at 3.9. The reason being is the big company climbers, 90% of their wealth came from the stock compensation. Compensation related to their being a partner in a big law firm or a big CPA firm, right? Yeah. And the entrepreneur path, and by the way, so the saver investor took 32 years to accumulate that 3.4 million. The big company climber took about 20 years, the virtuoso, and the entrepreneur took 12 years to mm -hmm. accumulate 7.4 million. It was wow. by far the the shortest and the wealthiest path. Now, of course, everybody now is going to say, well, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> it is also the hardest path to wealth, the most stressful path to wealth, and the path to wealth that had the highest divorce rate. So remember that, right, before uh, before you jump into any of that, you have to do it. I think what I love about this model is, you now, most people, and I have a lot of friends who are calling me nowadays saying, hey, my kid wants to go to college. And do. This is not, they're, they're not looking for my advice. They're just kind of sharing. And I was thinking about the other day, I wish I had a framework to say that, hey, you know what? There's functional paths, which is go to become a doctor or an engineer or this or that. That's a very yeah. technical skill. But I liked your classification as well, because now you're saying is that it doesn't matter which technical path you go, there are four possible ways you can end up. Just because you're becoming a doctor does not mean you're mm -hmm. going to be a, a saver investor. You could also be an entrepreneur. 
a lot of medical doctors are right now becoming professional investors. There's a whole term called doctorpreneur coming up, which is the doctors who are entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. They're doctors who are heavily researched. So just because you're picking a technical path does not bind you to any one of these categories. This is no matter what you study for, what kind of path are you going to explore after you're done? Or you may never be done, especially if you're a virtuoso, because uh, the whole life is going to be a learning path. So I like that, and I like your categorization here. I had one question. Why did you pick the number? I think you said $3.64 million. What was the reason for that? $3.2 million was in my financial planning world. If you multiplied that by 5%, in almost any state, you could survive on that income. Got it. Meaning, meaning your standard of living would be one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. Okay. And in New Jersey, you could you could live off of that. In New York, California, you it would, that, that you probably need about two two yeah. twenty. But for most most of the states, other than these just you know these high high cost of living states, and New Jersey is one of them. But they're still that three. That's where that three point two million dollar number comes from. What what standard of living, what would you need your standard of living to be? That's the answer that I was trying to come up with. And how do I get the wealth number? I divide, I know 5% is, you just draw 5% of your wealth every year. Well, in New Jersey, the and New York metropolitan area was 160,000 in the financial planning world. That's on average what you needed to, to live a kind of a good life. So divide 160,000 by 5%, you get $3.2 million. Got it. Okay, perfect. Um, that makes sense. So Tom, we're coming towards the end of our show here. I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation because this is a framework I've never thought about it. But it's kind of like, I mean, I'm aware of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad's framework, which is very different. They have a lot of similarities, but very different than uh, than your path. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump, since you brought that up, I want to jump on it. I don't know if you notice, but Dave Ramsey and Robert Kiyosaki, they go at each other in the media. Oh, you know, okay. right? And and Robert Kiyosaki calls him an idiot, and Dave Ramsey calls him an idiot. Yes. And the funny thing is, because I've been on both of their, their radio programs, I've been on, right? I, people don't know that Robert Kiyosaki ha- had a radio program. I don't know if he still does. He still has it, richdad.com. Rich yeah, yeah. Still has it. I was doing that, and then I was on Dave Ramsey's show, and that I put the Dave Ramsey interview on my website if you want to l- listen mm-hmm. to it. But what's funny is they're both right. They're calling each other idiots, but they're both right. It's just that Dave Ram- Ramsey focuses on the saver investors. Saver investors, definitely. And and, uh, and uh, Robert Kiyosaki focuses on the entrepreneur. No, you're completely right. I always tell people, I think- Isn't that interesting, Asaka, that they don't understand themselves, and they're wealth experts. They don't understand themselves that there's four paths to wealth. That's why my, my research is so profound in my mind. Is so even- I, I love that framework, man, because I think it's kind of like also in my world when I'm helping- People develop their wealth strategy. We're trying to figure. We're not. We're not. I think now I'm going to borrow it or steal it. I guess. Your, but I give you the credit for where it belongs. That mm-hmm. you know what this. What kind of person are you? Because not everyone's going to be a passive investor in a specific asset class just because I'm telling them to be. Right. Right. And I could see that conversation going a lot better. Hey, I'm a saver investor. If you're a saver investor. Your path to wealth, from, even from passive investment, is very different. You're not going to invest, chances are, in a venture capital fund that Saki Jane has because uh, the risk appetite is not there. But <laughs> you may be a great person for a multifamily syndication or, right. or you stay in stocks and bonds or this or that. Like There's different ways. You could use that to also determine your investor DNA, right? Where uh, What is your investor DNA? 
if you if you have one of these categorizations. So no, I, I see a lot of a lot of different implications for this model. So thank you for sharing that with us, Tom. So Tom, next question towards the, because we're heading towards the end. I want to be respectful of your time here and the audience time as well. What's as you reflect back, Tom? Do you have kids? Remind me. Yeah, I have three kids, and they're all adults. They're all adults. Perfect. So we're all my rich habits, guinea pigs, and they're all. Of course. They're, like, they're doing much better than I, I, I was doing in my life at their stage. Much I love that. So what's the what's one value that, as you reflect back on your of you raising them, what's one value you emphasized a lot of? Gosh, I, I paid them to read books. I paid <laughs> them to read. I paid them $25 each to read How to Win Friends and Influence People when they were in high school. Each kid, once they got into high school, I paid them $25 each to read that book. I would go back and I would tell myself, read this book. And uh, and by the way, you know, ima imagine it's a slippery slope socket when you think about it. Oh, what would I go back and if I could go back in time? What, do you realize if you go back in time and you say anything to yourself, you probably won't have the three kids that you have. You, you know what Definitely, I mean? Definitely, man. Definitely. That's a fun travel, isn't it? Good it's so funny, Tom. I used to ask that question. I've rephrased that question. I'm like, I don't think I want Tom to do anything different. No. But you learned a lesson for your kids for sure. So you have raised the kids a certain way. That's why I changed the question framing now. I think the better question is, knowing what you know, what do you want to teach your kids that you wish that, that. You, you knew at their age? And I said to my kids, I said, this is what I, I'm, I would come home with these rich habits. I said, this is what I learned today. And I would tell them, you know, you got to read 30 minutes to learn and and by the way, it's so important building relationships with the right people. And when you start dating, you know, the person that you want to be dating, you know, is somebody that shares your values, your habits, that's you're in alignment with, especially when they get into college and after college, you know, that's important. You, so you want, you just don't want them dating any person because they're, you know, the divorce rate is high because the people who get married don't share values and habits and a clear, a clear vision of the the life that they both desire. They both, they have different visions. And, and so it, it gets them in trouble. So tell how do you, so let, let's, let's go back to your idea. I really loved that paying your kids to read the books, especially ones that they don't either value at that time because they don't see the impact of it. How do you, if I, my kids are eight and 10 years old, it's a, it's a personal question at this point. If I, if I'm giving them money, how do I know they drew the value out of that? Right? Well, yeah. what I, talk about and this is very important because this is a whole nother topic if you your kids if you want to teach your kids how to be savvy financially the time to start teaching them i believe is is when they're like the eighth grade to freshman year in high school and i think in the, when you're 10 years old you just what you're in the fourth grade that's a that's a little grade, yeah yeah they're not going to learn the lessons i think it's it's uh, eighth grade freshman year and what you do is so these kids are getting money from gifts they're get and maybe they're getting money in the eighth grade and freshman year when they start working and you say guess what's going to happen with the gifts you can take 20 percent of the gifts 80 percent is going into the bank account with when you're earning money 50 percent is going into the bank account and is going to be invested and the other 50 percent you could do with with what you want so you you get them into the habit of saving money right early on and and the parent becomes becomes their accountability partner it becomes their mentor the parent is actually participating in their learning to become financially literate so it's they're involved in in educating them on how to be good with money 
that's very, very important. You know, in my household, my, you know, my parents took our money. So that's not a good lesson to teach your kids, right? Yeah. Uh, anytime you save, somebody's going to take your money. So don't, don't save money. That's what poor people, that's the lesson that they learn. You want to be that proactive accountability partner, teaching your kids how to be savers. And then uh, if they decide later in life that they're going to be an entrepreneur, they'll, they'll probably have a good amount of chunk of change saved up. And that safety net could help them as an entrepreneur, you know, to pay their mortgage and things like that. Love that. Tom, next question really is, where do you feel as you reflect in your research in talking to other people, where does humanity pull the gap right now? Where should humanity be towards? Well, I, 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 this is a powerful question. And I've written about this. The system is rigged against us. It's rigged against the poor and it's rigged against the middle class. They use, there's a couple of tools that they use to create this wealth gap and it's intentional. They're creating the wealth gap. They want a handful of people having all the money in the world and they, they use interest rates. They use inflation. They use suppressed real wage growth. They use taxation and they use consumerism. These five tools are used by the puppet masters, if you will, who are in control of a lot of the pulling the strings in the world. They know that if the economy is booming, isn't it funny, Socket, when the economy is booming and people are making advances, they're, they're, they're starting to get ahead. What happens? All of a sudden, they put the brakes on everything by calling, you know, yeah. saying the economy is overheating. We need to, you know, the, we need to cut, we need to cut the, uh, increase the interest rates because we need to stop uh, the flow of capital because economy is overheating. Economy is not overheating. That's a nonsense. That they're worried about is that real wage growth is making people, is creating, lifting people up. And they don't, I, I, I hate to say this, the system is rigged against the poor and the middle class. They don't want these people to get a leg up because they want them to, to really, most of society, they want them to be struggling yeah, uh, because then they're not watching the leaders. They're they're too busy worrying about paying their bills. But if you have some money and some savings, and your wages are going up because real wage growth is increasing because the economy is thriving, uh, that that poses a risk to the leadership because now people are going to have more money and they're going to be starting to pay attention to things. Uh, they're going to have money gives you bandwidth. Why? Because now you can pay all these bills. You don't have to worry about them. So now you have more brain neurological bandwidth, then you can start focusing on what your leaders are doing, what your politicians are doing. They don't want that. So I'm, I, I think the wealth gap exists. It's created. It's artificially created. It's intentional. And it's in, intended to keep us in a state of constant chaos so that we are not focusing on what the puppet masters are doing in society. Oh my God, Tom, you hit, yeah, I, I think we got to do another episode on this topic because it's such a, it's such an important topic. Because I think most people are, were, if you start looking at the motivations for the wars, for the messaging, for the political message, especially if you start looking at the details of that and why a certain, why a certain message was pushed out at a certain point in time, if you start looking at the motivations, it's really to create a divisive society, period. Yeah. And divisive society takes the attention away from everything else. And I think it's you and I relate to that is in your example, growing up poor these were not important thoughts for you because you were trying to figure out how to feed, how to put food on the table, how to pay a mortgage, uh, what a politician is doing or what a, what a bank is doing or what a Fed is doing. Yeah, it's important to you. But you don't have the mental, mental capacity to think about that because every time you're not think, you're thinking about these things, you're not thinking about how to, how to bring food to the table. Yeah. So that's a very important gap. And I think it's a, it's a gap that I talk about that a lot on our show 
We have written articles on that, and I love I love to bring uh, more light on your topic and try to bring uh, direct some of the audience to your to your written material because the, this this is important. This is very very important. I just bought a series of book by Uncle Eric uh, for my kids really to try to get get them to understand what free market capitalism is. What yeah. what really is liberty? What was this country created on? I mean, it's important for us to at least have an understanding of that. So sorry. I'm going to go off on tangent. I'm going to stop. But thank you for bringing that up. It's a very important topic. Tom, last, the last few questions, but one is, in the last 40, 50 minutes, uh, we've talked a lot about the four paths to wealth. Is there anything that you believe that I didn't ask you or you didn't share that an audience would benefit from? I think one thing, there's, there's an easy way and there's a hard way to become wealthy. Uh-huh. The hard way is a school of hard knocks. That's by learning through mistakes you don't know what you don't know, and so you, tr- you trial and error. And then there's the smart, easy way. That's finding a mentor. So I'd like to say, look, everything that I've said still stands, but why don't you find somebody that is successful and then ask them to guide you? If, if that's if Let's say you're in this particular career path and that person's in that industry. Ask them to be a mentor because, and I'll tell you this, they, they need to be wealthy independently wealthy people because people who are still trying to accumulate their wealth are going to not have enough time to be mentors to you. They'll mentor you, but it's not going to be, it's going to be sporadic. Yeah. Somebody who is independently wealthy, and I do I do this with a couple of people that are young in college. I uh, have a set time on a set day where we talk, sometimes for a year or more, but I always schedule it as a year. And I say, we're going to talk every month, this time and this day. And I do. I put it on my outlook and we talk. People, successful people want to help other people because it lifts society. And plus, it makes you feel good about yourself when you're doing good. It just does. It makes you feel better about yourself. And I always like to mentor young people. I, I just do. I, it's, a, it's one of the things that I'm passionate about. I think that, that, that that's what I want to leave you with is find a mentor, somebody who's willing to mentor you so that you can learn without having to make all of those costly in terms of time and money mistakes. Yeah, yeah I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with that because what a mentor does is they, he or she, they would shrink the time, right? What takes yeah. you 10 years with a right mentor. Now, it's, very, it's, it's important to find the right mentor because there are people who don't know how to be mentors. And I've, I've myself. But if you find the right person, but takes you 10 years could happen in 10. And that's, yeah. that's what you want. That's what you want. Now, you don't want, they're not going to do the work for you. But if you're looking at an easy button, mentorship is not for you. But if you're looking at somebody who's going to push you in the directions, that's good that you're going to expand and accelerate your growth in, a mentor is a Yeah, and so, it's got to be somebody you can relate to. Somebody right. that, that is, if somebody who's an opposite personality of you, it's just not going to work. You got to find a mentor that right. you can relate to. Completely. But Tom, on that note, buddy, where can people find you, learn more about your work, download resources that you have? I think you're a prolific writer and a reader yourself. So what resources do you have for others? So just go to my website, richhabits.net. You'll find everything on there. I write articles every day. I have free eBooks on there. You can go to Amazon, get my books, Rich Habits series of books. So yeah, richhabits.net is probably a good starting point. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you again for your time. I know you're a busy man, but thank you for spending so much time in, in First of all, researching these topics yeah. and then coming up with insightful observations that can, that can alter any life's trajectory. So thank you for that. And thank you listeners for 
hopefully you got a lot of value and hopefully you got understanding of a framework that not only you but people around you you're able to share that so they can they can better their own lives so thank you again for tuning in thank you again for listening tom thank you again for being our guest my pleasure if you got value from this episode you might consider sharing this content with a friend but most importantly be sure to take action on what you've learned one way you can take the next step is to connect directly with socket on an investor call that link is waiting for you in the show notes below